It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Moon Man, a song by a Youngstown group, Whiskey Pilot. I like Whiskey Pilot, by the way. I love that name. Whiskey Pilot is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast and we'll tell you a little bit more about them, how to find their music, and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, police have never been confident on how to classify the case of 17-year-old Kurt Sova. At the very least, his is a mysterious death whose cause could never be determined by the coroner. But Kurt's mother, Dorothy, who investigated her son's death for some 30 years until she died herself in 2014, was never willing to give up the idea that her son was murdered. There are so many riddles and contradictions and cover-ups. Authorities agree it's time to take another look. A couple of months ago, Newburgh Heights police announced a new push to figure this one out. Newburgh Heights is a Cleveland suburb and the city where Dorothy and Ken Silva raised their four sons. Kurt was the youngest of their boys, a high school junior in October of 1981 when this story takes place. Dorothy always described Kurt as a good brother and even better son, not the kind of kid who ever got into trouble. Not at school, not at home, not in the neighborhood, certainly not with police. On a Friday afternoon, October 23, 1981, Kurt left his house, and about a block away, he met up with a friend who had plans to go to a Halloween party that evening. Kurt decided to join him. Dorothy and Ken Sova didn't know this. All they knew was that Kurt stepped out and never came back. He rarely stayed out past 11 o'clock, and never without calling, So when Dorothy and Ken woke Saturday morning to find Kurt had never returned home, they were understandably worried. Dorothy started working the phones, calling friends and family. Ken hopped in his car and started driving through the neighborhood, hoping to learn something. The next day, after an obligatory 24-hour waiting period, 
The Sovas filed a missing persons report. Meanwhile, they continued to search. The family walked the neighborhood, going as far as to look inside every dumpster they came across. They posted flyers in stores with Kurt's photo. Sunday afternoon, they got an important tip. That's when they learned about the Halloween party. It was held at a duplex a couple of miles from where Kurt lived. Dorothy went to the duplex hoping to talk to a Susan, a woman who had hosted the party, but Susan was at work. A babysitter passed on her contact info, and later that night, Susan called Dorothy. She denied having had a party and denied having seen Kurt. But after a pizza delivery man confirmed there was a party at the duplex that Friday night, Dorothy called Susan again. This time, Susan admitted, okay, there was a party, and Kurt was there. She told the distraught mother that there were perhaps a dozen people at the party, mostly acquaintances from Detroit. She described the crowd as being older than Kurt and made up of people Kurt wouldn't have known. She also said that Kurt was drunk, that he had been drinking Everclear, a drink so strong it was actually illegal in some states. That news surprised friends and family who never knew Kurt to be much of a drinker. They became very concerned. Kurt, with a skinny build and lack of drinking experience, would have had no tolerance for that kind of liquor. Now that Dorothy knew about the party, she was able to catch up with the friend who had taken him there. The friend confirmed that Kurt had drank too much, became ill, and that he had taken Kurt outside to get some fresh air. The friend said it was cold out, so he left Kurt hanging on to a chain-link fence and went inside to get Kurt's jacket. But when he came back, Kurt was gone. Had Kurt stumbled away, intoxicated, and got lost somewhere? Or did he meet with foul play? His parents didn't know what to think. After all, they'd already caught people from the party lying to them. What were they covering up? Those posters Kurt's family put up in the local stores led to a very strange incident. A record store featuring one of the flyers was visited by a man who told the store owner that she might as well take the poster down. The stranger said he's going to be found dead in two days and nobody's going to know how he died. The next day, the owner arrived to open the store and found a bouquet of flowers with a card that read, Roses are red, the sky is blue. They found him dead, and they'll find you dead too. She called police, who found the man and interrogated him. Police decided he was mentally and emotionally disturbed, but not connected to Kurt's death. They released him. Later that same day, it was Wednesday, October 28 now, the search for Kurt Sova ended. Three boys were exploring a ravine on Harvard Street, behind a warehouse and just 500 yards from the party duplex, when they spotted bright yellow fabric among the neutral tones of the ground. It was Kurt, the yellow fabric, his T-shirt. He was barefoot. His left tennis shoe had been found wedged in a pile of rocks nearby. His right shoe was never found. There were no signs of assault. His body showed no injuries except for a few minor scrapes to his bare feet. Police tried to find the man they had released earlier, who had left the flowers and the rhyme at the record store, 
but he was nowhere to be found. Police indicated that they didn't think Kurt had taken himself to that spot, whatever the cause of death. They thought he had been taken to that spot by someone who wanted his body to be found quickly. After all, it was not so isolated an area that it would have remained a secret for long. Indeed, his father, Ken, had searched that same ravine just two days earlier. Kurt's cause of death was never determined. The coroner ruled he either died naturally or accidentally. He hadn't been beaten. There were no signs of trauma. He didn't have enough alcohol in his blood to end a life. His blood alcohol content was 0.11, near the legal limit of 0.08. He had no medical condition to account for his death. Chief Deputy Coroner Dr. Lester Adelson acknowledged that all that was left was diagnosis by exclusion. Thus, a very generic ruling of natural or accidental. Kurt's family has never accepted that. The autopsy revealed he had been dead for about a day, a day and a half, but he'd been missing five days. What happened between the time he left the party and the time he died? And then a very unexpected witness came forward. A classmate named David Trusnick told the Sovas he saw Kurt alive, two days before he ended up in that ravine. He said Kurt and another boy were walking along a busy street less than a mile from the Sova home. He said he started to pull over to offer the boys a ride. But just then, a van pulled up and Kurt yelled out, Hey, Franco! Then Kurt and the boy ran to the van and got in. Tresnick said at the time he didn't even know Kurt was missing or he would have pursued the van or called police. There was nothing to suspect anything out of the ordinary. Then another odd development. On the day Kurt's body was found, Susan, the party host, called Dorothy again. This time, she said somebody had been sleeping in her basement as recently as the night before. She said she didn't know if it was Kurt, but it might have been. By now, Dorothy and Ken Sofa didn't believe anything Susan had to say, but they went to her apartment and looked at the basement anyway. There was a cot there, and someone had slept in it the previous night, but there were no other clues to be found. If this case hasn't been confusing enough, consider this. Three months after Kurt died, a 13-year-old boy from the same neighborhood was found dead. Eugene Cavett went missing in January of 1982. A few days later, his body was found in another ravine on Harvard, two miles from where Kurt was found, but along the very same street. An autopsy determined Eugene died from falling into the ravine, though the coroner could not confirm whether he was pushed or thrown or simply fell in. Kurt and Eugene knew each other. And one last eerie similarity, like Kurt, Eugene was missing his right shoe, which was never found. Kurt's story aired on Unsolved Mysteries in 1988. You can find it online if you'd like to watch it. Kurt's parents are gone now. Ken died in 2001. Dorothy died in 2014. But the story hasn't been forgotten. In November... Newburgh Heights Police Department announced it was partnering with Tiffin University students to take another look at the case. Criminal justice professor Michael Lewis said students will reanalyze the old evidence. 
They asked police for access to the evidence and will use troves of information that were collected by Kurt's mom, Dorothy. Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy said they've never classified Kurt's death as a homicide, but said it was definitely an unusual death, and there are enough questions and rumors to warrant another look. In a press conference, Kurt's brother, Kevin Sova, pleaded for answers. Someone knows what happened to my brother, he said. Please come forward. If you have information on this one, call Crime Stoppers at 216-252-7463. There is a reward of up to $5,000 for information on this case. And remember, with Crime Stoppers, you can be anonymous. That's what makes it work. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Well, tonight with us, we have Michael Schleiss from New Franklin, Ohio. And Mike Schleiss, you have the same last name as me. Yes. Is that a coincidence? I think we had the same parents. <laughs> we had the same parents. <laughs> well, you were perfect for this case for a couple of reasons. One, you're the one who brought it to my attention. Thank you. You're welcome. And the other is, I mean, isn't this guy, wasn't he your age at that time? How old were you in 1981? I had just graduated high school, so I was 18 years old. Oh, my gosh. So you were within one year of this guy's age yep. at the same time. What did you think of this case? I mean, what made me think about it was I had a real good friend, um, and we were both seniors in high school, and we went to a Halloween party, and I left the party earlier, and uh, my best friend ended up getting hit by a drunk driver that just kept going, and it almost cost him his life. And it just, when I heard the story, it kind of, I could relate to it a lot because of the age factor and knowing back in 1981, you know, how things happened. That's, what a coincidence. It was a Halloween party. You and your friend got uh, separated, and something tragic happened to one of them. He survived it, but he... He was ill for a long time after yeah, he that. Yeah, was, he was in the hospital for a while. He actually got knocked out of his shoes oh when he got hit gosh. by the car. And did he ever recover his right shoe? <laughs> Hopefully. Oh, that's bad. That's bad. He'll forgive me. Sorry, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, the thing that gets me about this story is, I mean, you have people that are missing and then they show up, you know, their, their remains are found later. But rarely do you hear about somebody who's missing, and when their remains are found, you find out that they were likely living for quite a chunk of the time that they were missing. I mean, do you think that friend was right? Do you think he really saw him, you know, getting into the van with somebody a couple of days after he disappeared and and that he was alive and well and acting normally? Absolutely. I, I mean, something they never touch about on the on the whole subject when you read about it or watch it is the the family situation. I mean, if he was having a hard time at home, maybe that's why he decided to bolt for four or five days. Um, has this ever happened to him before? I mean, they never went into the family history as to whether or not him disappearing for a period of time was normal. They did say it wasn't normal for him to drink, but when they found him, the toxicology report said that he wasn't technically legally drunk. And there's so many things that can happen at home that you just, 
you know, doesn't come out publicly. You don't know what kind of home life that he had or or how he was personally. I mean, he maybe he was, this was an attempt to run away in some Absolutely. fashion. Absolutely. The idea that the coroner could not figure out how this kid died. What did you think of that? I, you know, I can't think of back in 1981 what kind of forensic abilities they had because it really never crossed my mind going to high school. But you would think that somehow, some way, they would have be have more of a definitive answer as to how he died, other than natural causes or by accident blunt force trauma, or anything of that nature. It, you know, the toxicology reports came back, and there was nothing. Um, just don't make a whole lot of sense. I really hope something. this is something that those students are going to be able to. I don't know if they're going to like try to exhume his body or just look at the coroner's report, but I'm hoping with today's technology, maybe that's an answer they can still get. Is it possible to do a toxicology report on someone that's been deceased that long? I would probably think not. Probably not because you'd be embalmed, so that would probably ruin all of that. But maybe there is enough in the written record by the coroner that maybe different conclusions can be drawn. You know, maybe we know something more now. I mean, when they said that he didn't drink... I mean, you always got to take into consideration, was was he drugged? Was there something put in a drink where he was outside hugging the fence and then all of a sudden disappeared? Yeah, if he's there with a bunch of older people and they're from Detroit, I'm not, you know, labeling the entire city of Detroit, but they were from a a big urban city somewhere else. You got to wonder what that crowd was, what was going on there. Exactly, and they don't elaborate on it too much either. It's just... An entourage from Detroit. I mean, that could be anything. What does that mean? (laughs) Absolutely. What about the guy at the record store? Yeah, once again, they don't elaborate too much on it. Um, I didn't get a chance to go back and watch the uh, Unsolved Mystery uh, when they did it, but where did this guy come from, and why was he so quickly dismissed, and why did he disappear after... The boy was found. I mean, there's a lot of questions there. And it all happened like the same day. Like he he brought the, that bouquet to the record store the same day that that kid was found. And his little poem, you know, was just really haunting. And I just can't believe they let him go that quickly. I can see why they hurried up and tried to find him again, but... Yeah, why was why couldn't they find him again? He was on the run. And to dismiss him just because um, he may have some mental issues or something like that. I mean, why would you dismiss somebody just because they had mental issues? I mean, that could have been part of the problem. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Every time I hear that, oh, we dismissed him because he had mental issues. And my first thought is... Doesn't that mean that he would have maybe a reason for, yeah. you know, doing, you know, this kind of behavior? Yeah. So, yeah, there's so much bizarre about this. Do you have a conclusion? I mean, do you have an idea of, of just a general theory of what happened? I think something had to go down with the Detroit uh, population, if you have it, <laughs> that was at the party. I mean, once again, they don't go into great detail, but... I believe something had happened, whether it was maybe an argument or a fight, and somebody took it too far. Who knows? Maybe they just drugged the kid, 
and something went wrong and they got rid of the body. I think the the white van showing up a couple days before they find the body, um, I think that's a key point and that could have very easily been part of the uh, Detroit entourage. Who knows? So if they did something that night, though, it wouldn't have been to kill him because they could tell that his body was only dead a day when they found him. So maybe he was willingly hanging out with them for a time. Oh, and then there's that weird thing where Susan calls the mother after he's found dead and says, oh, by the way, your kid might have been sleeping in my basement last night. I'm like, what? I forgot about that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, that's, yeah, there's just so much unanswered. And and to have them dismiss this as not a a suspicious case or a murder, I'd, I don't know. It's just weird. The whole case is weird. Well, thank goodness they're taking another look at this. And, you know, the police, the Newburgh Heights police, they're not avoiding it. They're like, yeah, you know what, this is strange enough that we need to look at it. And I'm glad they're they're cooperating with these students and... You know, hopefully, hopefully we'll figure that one out because yeah. it's it's really really odd. Yep. Hopefully they uh, they can shed some new light on it and put some closure in for the family. Well, Mike, thanks for bringing this case to our attention and for chatting it out with us. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. Stop by our website, ohiomysteries.com, for photos, links, news clippings, and more for this and every Ohio Mystery episode. You know what else you'll find at this website? What? Links to every musical artist we featured on our episodes. Oh, yeah. So let's add another one tonight, Paula. You bet. Tonight we're featuring Whiskey Pilot, a band and a group of four friends who have been playing together since 2015. They are Dominic Ferrari, Jack Mocker, David Ramsey, and Ben Ratner. You can find Whiskey Pilot on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And, you know, if you just like any of those social media sites, they will keep you up to date on when and where they are playing and if they're releasing any new music. Well, this is a perfect time for a listen to that song. We sampled at the very start of the podcast. Here's the full version of Moon Man by Whiskey Pilot. Give it a listen, and we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Shake your grip with my mind on the morning The snow and cold, I'm right here, please ignore me I get by just fine like I have every time My lips move, they can see through what I'm saying I twist my words with no thought of hesitating I can't remember your name, can you tell me again?
met the man in the moonlight. Ooh, I met the man in the. Ooh, I met the man in the moonlight. Ooh, I met the man in the. Wow. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.